0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Greg Paris. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. Beautiful day, right? This is the day the Lord has made. He did really well. And we're rejoicing and glad in it. Thanks for joining us online. We are thrilled that you've chosen to be with us today. So glad. We're on chapter 20 of the story. It's Father's Day. Let me just uh, offer a couple of axioms that have been meaningful to me. For example, the best the best way to influence your kids is to go home and love their mother. I like that. I think that's that's a good uh, perspective. Mother Teresa said it this way, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. That works too, doesn't it? So all of you dads out there, congratulations, and we are grateful to God for good fathers. And I know that you're doing the kinds of things that will make you more effective in your parenting and fatherhood. Well done. Today I want to talk about this amazing story, chapter 20 in the the book, if, if you're up to date. This is because of repeated disobedience. The nation of Israel was judged, taken into Babylonian captivity, where they were exported there for 70 years. You remember the story? Um... We have amazing characters during those 70 years, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now we have this young, beautiful queen named Esther. She was a Jewish girl, most powerful man in the world, Xerxes, who was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire at the time, has offered the tribe of Judah to return back home to Jerusalem. And he does this because the Lord compels him to do so. And it's not—it's interesting that not all the Jews returned home, and, and we have an idea. Look at, at the screen at Ezra chapter one, verse five. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So, Xerxes the king gave permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem, but only about fifty thousand of them actually returned and began the work rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And we wonder why God didn't speak to all the Jews so that all of them would go home. But as it turns out, God had a very important plan for the Jews that didn't return home. And it's an amazing part of this story. And it begins with this young queen named Esther. Now, this is about 479 B.C. So this is about 480 years before Jesus appears on the earth. And this young queen, Esther, has... has influence now because of her Jewish heritage. There's a guy who has ridden to a high level in the king's court. His name is Haman. Now, Haman's a bad guy, and Haman is anti-Semitic, and he hates the Jews, and he convinces the king to sign this irrevocable decree that on a certain date, 11 months out, that it would be legal on that day to kill all of the Jews in the kingdom and take their possessions. And so the king, under the negative influence of this bad guy named Haman, he signs this irrevocable decree. And what Haman doesn't know is that the queen, Esther, is a little Jewish girl. Now, what had happened is the prior queen had been summoned by King Xerxes to come into his court, into his presence, and she refused to come. And that was a bad idea. And as a result of that, all of the other managers and, and other leaders in the kingdom said to the king, listen, if your own wife won't obey your commands, what chance do we have with our wives? This is an age-old problem. And <laughs> one guy slips up, we all suffer. Come on, guys. And so he he's enraged at his wife and so he uh, banishes her from her position and pushes her out of the kingdom. And so now he needs a new queen. And so what King Xerxes does is he tells all of his managers to go to the far flung corners of the kingdom and find the most beautiful young women in the kingdom and he wants he wants to have them all paraded in front of him and he's going to pick the new queen that way. This is like the Miss Universe pageant, and they're all prancing in front of him. Have you heard the old adage, it's good to be king? This is one of the reasons why that became a popular saying. And so they're, (laughs) I'm so close, I know, I'm right on the edge, I'm on the brink, I know. But I don't care. So they're parading these women in front of him, and Esther must have been special, Because she catches his eye, and he picks her. Now, Esther has been raised by a cousin whose name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is also official. He's lowly positioned in the kingdom, but he's there in the the palace. And Mordecai suggests to Esther when the king selects her as queen that maybe she should keep her heritage a secret. So the king and no one else, Haman or no one else, knows that Esther is a Jewish girl. Now, three months before this decree is to be fulfilled, uh, after three months, eight months before the decree is to be fulfilled, Mordecai sends word to Esther that she's going to have to do something to try to rescue uh, the Jews. This is just another attempt at, at another holocaust. This is, this is a, a way to destroy genocidally, the whole race of Jews. This has happened over and over again in history. Another example of it. And so Mordecai says to his cousin Esther, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to appeal to the king. And this is her response to him. It's in Esther chapter 4, verse 11. She said to him, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them, spares their lives. She says, 30 days have passed, and I haven't been called in to the king all this time. And so, in order for a queen or anyone else to get into the inner court where the, where, the, where the king resides, has to be summoned, has to be invited into that. Otherwise, if you go uninvited, you can be punished, you can lose your crown, you can even be executed for this. Now, For the record, in case some of you are wondering, my wife Beth does not have to be summoned by me in order to enter my presence. Heck, I don't even have a golden scepter. But I was thinking about this kind of protocol this week as I was studying this passage and I was thinking that it might not be a bad arrangement if you could pull it off. So if any of you guys go home today, you know, and someone hands you a gift, Father's Day gift, you unwrap it and it's a golden scepter, you have arrived. <laughs> you are the man. It's good to be king. Yeah, good for you. Not sure how that'll work out long term, but So Mordecai sends back this response to her. That's this is in Esther 4:13. Do not think that because you're in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Now watch this phrase. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now that's one of those phrases in the book of Esther that's really catchy. It's really powerful. Who's to say that you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this? The implications of this are very powerful, aren't they? Amazing. He's saying, Esther, you're not here with this immense influence by accident. This isn't a coincidence that you happen to be in this position at this time. And could it be that God has placed you here in advance for this very purpose? So Esther has a decision to make. Here is her response. Again, Esther 4, verse 16. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And now here's another phrase. If I perish, I perish. Wow. Wow, girl. That, that's pretty impressive. I'm going to go in without a summons from the king. I'm going to risk it. If I die, I die. You fast and pray. Maybe God will intervene, but we're going to do something. After three days, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner corner of the palace. Now, when it says she put on her royal robes, I'm thinking these were specially designed robes. I'm thinking she put her best foot forward. Have you heard the phrase, use what, use what, your, what the good Lord gave you? This is a beautiful young woman. I'm I'm guessing her robe was especially fashioned uh, to impress the king as much as possible. And by the way, God has given all of us special abilities, gifts, features, qualities, and all of us should use what the Lord gave us. You have permission. Use what the Lord gave you. It's all right. He wouldn't have given it to you otherwise. Otherwise. Very interesting response from the congregation this morning. (laughs) She got... So serious. So she goes in. Can you see her? Maybe hands folded. She maybe isn't walking straight forward. She's just slipping into the king's presence. And he lowers the scepter. Good news. She walks over. She touches the scepter. And she tells her husband, the king, the story about her people, the Jews. He's learning for the first time that she's a Jew. And, and he changes his mind. And the, and the people are saved. It's an amazing thing. The Jews celebrate this moment to this day in an annual feast called the Feast of Purim. And it's, it's, it's a celebration that reminds them that no matter the danger, no matter the circumstances, no matter the threat, no matter the opposition, that God is with us, that God is faithful, and God can be trusted. Amen. And we can celebrate the same reality of the nature and character of God. We sang a song this morning about trusting God. You didn't sing it nearly as enthusiastically as you should have. Because our God is a trustworthy God. He is a faithful God. His mercies are new every morning. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He has made a way for us. He has a plan and provision for us. And there is nothing that can keep us from God's best plan as we place our hope and trust in him. Amen. Amen. That's where the amen goes in the sermon. So what's the application? What can we learn from this story? Let me offer a few things. One is, if you're looking at the app and following the outline, God has placed you in a position of influence. Now, before you push back on that, it's absolutely true. In in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it's clear that God has ordered everyone's position, everyone's place, everyone's opportunities of influence in the world. This is something that God does. That means that you As a follower of Jesus, a person who submitted your life to the will and ways of God, you will find yourself at the right place, at the right time, with the right people, doing the right things. And in that context, you have influence. And if you don't have a a large amount of influence right now, one of the things that you can assume then is that God is preparing you for influence, and so the seasons and epochs of our lives are always opportunities for God to equip us, to prepare us for the things he has for us in the future. Today is always preparation for tomorrow in the economy of God. So you may be, you may be in a place right now where you think, what is going on? This is a test. This is difficult. This is discouraging. This is depressing. I, I, I have more fears than I have faith right now. That the world is crazy and it's upsetting. What can this possibly mean? It just means that God's toughening you up and making you stronger and growing your Christ like character and developing your faith because He has an opportunity for you in the future of greater, greater influence. This is a wonderful promise. So let me, let me just say dig deep, even in hard times, dig deep because God's at work. Uh, young Keegan David was a shepherd for his father. And so he tended the sheep. And this is what he did as a boy. He's a shepherd boy. But God saw in David a lot more influence than just being the shepherd of his father's flock. He saw him as the shepherd of the whole nation, as a king. And so what God did with David is for 14 years, he caused David to run for his life every day just trying to stay one step ahead of King Saul, who was trying to hunt him down and kill him. 14 years. He's a fugitive on the run. Can you imagine the kind of grit and character and competence that this would would build into a young David? And when God was done preparing him, then he set him in the place of influence. This same thing happened to Joseph. Joseph had this Great dream. He had this sense of destiny that God was going to use him in a big way, and yet his brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery. He's falsely accused in the house of a man named Potiphar in Egypt. He's thrown into prison for years, but then God finally brings him to his destiny where he preserves the whole nation as the prime minister of Egypt, most powerful man in the world. Amazing story, but it's an illustration of of how God will prepare a person. Not only does God call you to influence and a destiny, but he will call a person to prepare for that destiny. He not, only, he not only has a destiny prepared for you, but he will prepare you for that destiny. Do you have an ear for that? That means in the good times and the bads, you can trust God. He's in control. He's got you. He's got this. He's gonna see you through. You're gonna make it. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. You are going to be okay. Okay. Place your trust in God. Be confident in him. You're going to make it. You'll be okay. God's got this. He's got you. Are you listening? This is so important to get this. And so for some of you, you're still in this preparation and getting ready. And remember, there are Haman's everywhere. There are bad guys all over the place. For example, some of your students are going to schools that are much darker than the era that I went, through, went to school high school or college, that sort of thing. There are Hamans out there, so you gotta, you got to prepare yourself. Some of you are teachers and administrators, and you don't share the same worldview or the same values as your co-workers or those in charge of your school. So you've, gotta, you've just got to understand that and be wise about how you negotiate. Some of you are parents. Moms and dads today, you know, you're raising one, two, three, four of these, these little guys And you have enormous influence. The way you parent will change the entire trajectory of your child's life. This stuff matters. And so you've got to be ready. I'm a senior pastor of the largest church in the history of this city. There's never been a church like Union Chapel in the history of Muncie, Indiana, ever. It's completely unique. And so... God has given me influence, and so for years and years now, I'm constantly asking the question, how do you want me to use this influence that you've given me? Because all of us have been given influence, every one of us, and we should should seek to know what that influence is and engage it the best we can. One of the ways Union Chapel's influencing is this week in the week we call serve. If you're relatively new to the church, this is 20 years in a row we've done serve. This is the largest number of students, largest number of volunteers we've ever had in the 20-year history of SERVE. There will be teams of people fanning out across the city all week long. Uh, It's it's only going to be 100 degrees on Tuesday. Would you you pray and and bring some water or something? See, if see if you see a student working, just pour water on them. That'll help. And it's amazing because what God will do is in the morning we'll get everyone together and we will pray and we'll start sending teams out and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to manifest His life and His transforming power in the lives of people that are encountered all, all week long. And what will happen is what always happens is that miracles will occur and God will supernaturally invade places and people across the city through the lives of our students and volunteers that will change their lives forever. And by this time next week, there will be hundreds of students in our services who are absolutely cranked up for Jesus because they have seen a living Lord Jesus Christ moving in and through their lives all week. And they've seen miracles and they know God's alive and real and he's with them. And they have hope for the future because of that. They realize they have influence in the world. It's a powerful thing. One of my favorite stories, because these stories happen every day. And if you come to the lunch table and just... Hang out and listen to kids t- telling about what happened this morning, what happened this afternoon. It's amazing, and one of the stories that I that I just uh, just remember so fondly. This was a handful of years ago. We had four students who were in one of our uh, marginalized neighborhoods, and they were prayer walking. So they're just walking the street. We coach these kids up: just walk and pray. If you see someone, pray for them. As you walk by a home, just pray that God's blessing will fall on that home. Pray for God's blessing, his glory to fall in that whole neighborhood. And so they're just walking, these four students, teenagers. And there was an older woman sitting on the front porch of her very, very modest home. She said to the kids, what are you doing? And they told her, we're prayer walking. We're praying for people. We're happy to pray for you. And she said, my husband is very poorly. Would you be willing to come into my house and put your hands on my husband and pray for him? And they looked at each other. They knew that was a breach of protocol. But they, you know, they, were, they said, B- between the four of us, we ought to be able to take care of each other if something goes wrong. They went in the house, and they went back to this back room, and here was an elderly man sitting in a wheelchair. The shades were drawn. There was very little ambient light getting in the room, so it was dark and dingy, and here's this man in a dull stupor sitting in this room. And the kids went up to him and introduced themselves and put their hand on his shoulder, And they began to pray for him. And shortly after they began to pray for him, he began to weep. And as they were praying, he was was crying. And after a few moments, they finished their prayer. And he thanked them. And then he said, you guys, you kids don't understand. He said, just this morning, I had decided that I was going to give up. And that I was going to kill myself today. And he said, I I made one last prayer, and I I prayed this morning. He said, I I pray, God, if you're real, I need help. So if you're real, I pray that you will send someone to my house today to pray for me. So God is at work. God is on the throne of the universe. You may have fears welling up in your life, in your mind, in your heart, and there's lots of reason to be phobic in our world today. I understand. But at the same time, we must reassure ourselves that God has called us into the kingdom for such a time as this. And he has prepared us and is preparing us for influence in the world. And so it's no time to back up back away and become timid. It's a time to stand up, trust God, and to walk by faith because God is in the miracle business. And even in the midst of a challenging crisis time of life, maybe tragic for you, God is still on his throne and he is still with you and he's going to use you. It's a really good, really good preaching right there. It's really good. You're doing good, Greg. Now, a couple of other things we learned from Esther One is she learned when not to talk. (laughs) My mother used to tell me, just because it goes in your head, shouldn't come out of your mouth. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? How many of you have regrets? (laughs) For example, matters of preference. See, wise people know the difference between preference and truth. There, there have been churches divide over the, the color of paint chosen for the bathroom. I wanted it blue. I wanted it beige. And, and folks, literally, break fellowship over a preference. Uh, mode of baptism is one of these things that have divided people. Well, if you don't take a person and dunk them completely under the water, then they're not really baptized, and, and, that's, and that's not right. Well, you got all kinds of traditions you know, people say, well, you know, Jesus was, was dunked in the Jordan River. You don't know if he was dunked or not. You weren't there. <laughs> if you've seen the Jordan River, sometimes it runs three or four feet deep, and other times it runs eight inches deep. What if the day Jesus was out there with John Baptist and it was only eight inches of water? It's going to be hard to get that boy under there. So some people sprinkle, and some people pour, and some people immerse. Let's not fuss about that. That's a preference. It's not one of those doctrinal rules. Cut it out. Then there are people who won't listen. You know, I've learned over the years that you can talk to some people and you realize very quickly that they're unwilling to listen or to change their views. Jesus gave us perfect advice around this kind of subject in Matthew 7, 6. He said, listen, just don't cast your pearls before swine. So if you know folks aren't going to pay attention, just Stop talking and move on. Move on. The next person's likely to be more receptive. Or when you're angry. We all understand that when you're angry and you respond in anger, it always, almost always creates a bigger mess than when you started out. Solomon said in Proverbs that a soft answer turns away wrath. This is especially important for parents. You know, when you want to, your kids have, you know, exasperated you and you're ready to discipline them. And when you, if you do that in anger, that's not a good, good spirit. It's not good for, the, for you or the kids. So you need to just chill a bit, take a deep breath, you know, maybe go out in another room and pray, Lord Jesus, please help me so I don't kill my own child. You know, it's, this is a common parental prayer. And so, and so you just want to calm down a bit. So when you approach the, a child to discipline them and you're calm and you're loving, you're determined, you're assertive, uh, this will actually unnerve the child and they'll grant you respect if you have the right spirit in it. Uh, just to rehearse from last week some of the things I said, I never send an email after midnight and I always wait 24 hours before responding to a written confrontation or criticism. You know, when you're angry, zip it. Just wait. Uh, judging someone else's motives this is another reason to not, not talk. One of the biggest mistakes people make is pretending to be an expert on the motives of why other people do what they do when you don't know their motives at all. You don't know their story. You don't know they, what they've been through. You assume you know, and this becomes a problem. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul was challenged about his status as an apostle by the, by the Christians in Corinth, and they, they set this up by saying, you know, there are some super apostles you know, like superstar apostles who've come through and done some teaching here in Corinth, and boy, they were they were sharp, and they were handsome, and they were articulate, and they were impressive in every way. We're not sure about you or your motives, and Paul, traditionally, we, we've we learned that maybe he was a little smaller in stature, and, you know, his body was a little bent up, and, you know, bald-headed, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but... You know, he was just not as impressive as maybe the other guys. And so, and, and so he writes, and I, I paraphrase what he writes to the Corinthians. He said, it's interesting that you would challenge my motives uh, and claim to know the motives behind wh- what I do because I'm not completely sure what my motives are myself. In fact, only God knows what my motives are and your motives are, and one day he may reveal that to us, and then we'll know. But until then, how are you supposed to know someone's motives? I read this true story about a guy who goes into an airport terminal with his three small children, and, the, and they sit down to wait for the flight, and their three children are completely incorrigible. They're yelling and screaming and grabbing each other and tackling each other. And I mean, it was disruptive. And finally, one of the other passengers walks over to this guy who's kind of sitting there in a dull stupor and says, Sir, you're, you've got to do something. Your children are totally out of control. And after they say this, the the man kind of roused a little bit and came out of his stupor. And he looked up and he said, oh, yeah, he said, I'm really sorry. Um, uh, The children and I have just come from their mother's funeral. And I guess we just don't know what to do right now. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, what is the Christian response? Maybe it's, Maybe it's seek to understand. Maybe it's to pray. Could I help you cry your kids? Be glad to do that. Because we don't know, do we, what's happened in people's lives? Or when you don't know when you're, when you're, when you're talk, what you're talking about. Can I get a witness? When it's time not to talk, when you don't know what you're talking about. This is a real challenge for me because, as it turns out, I have an opinion on virtually every subject in the world. (laughs) And it's just very easy for me to share it. It's not good. I learned years ago, though, and this is a good practice, that people respond a lot better if, if they ask a question and you respond not by saying, well, this is what I think about that, but rather to say, you know, I don't know. What do you think? Or I'm not sure. I'm going to have to give that some thought. Or I'm going to have to do some research on that. Uh, what do you think? And it seems to help me get along with people a lot better that way. So these are reasons why we, when, we, when you shouldn't talk. But in Esther's case, she actually comes along and says, if I die, I die so she knows when to talk. So that's the second thing. Maybe you don't know this, but we live in this politically correct, woke, easily triggered, identity politic, social reform motivated, cancel culture. Did you notice? We're in quite a moment. And let me just be completely honest with you. I don't know, truthfully, as a Christian, as a leader, in our society today, When I'm supposed to talk and when I'm not supposed to talk. I feel muted sometimes or at least confused about when it's time to speak up. It's not easy, is it? It's just challenging. And I don't want to be needlessly offensive, as I mentioned. I don't want to be a legalist, a religious legalist, you know, and just draw lines in the sand all the time. In Esther's case, she said, look, if I die, I die. And I'm thinking, well, that's pretty bold, bold thing to say. Look at Psalm 82 on the screen with me. It says, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now there's some straightforward instruction about when to speak up, when to act, when to help. Now this passage is teaching that God wants his followers to speak up for those who are marginalized, who are weak, who don't don't have a voice. Speak up for them. So we can identify some categories to illustrate this. For example, in the category of domestic violence. Domestic violence is a big problem in our culture. It's a big problem in our own community. Some of you remember Nicole Brown Simpson. She was allegedly murdered by her husband, a strange husband, O.J. Simpson. And it was a brutal and extreme case of domestic violence. Nicole Brown Simpson's sister has subsequently spent her life traveling the country, talking to groups about domestic violence. Very interesting perspective she must have. And so she says that education helps and laws help and counseling helps, but but she said there is one universal solution to domestic violence. And she said it's good neighbors. I think I can hear from her about this subject. She said, if neighbors knew each other and cared about each other, they would know when domestic violence is happening in the home and they should speak up immediately. Gosh, that's, that's helpful perspective, isn't it? If it's your family or a friend or a neighbor and you know it's happening, call for help. Call for help. Speak up. That's the right thing to do. You know, around the subject of the unborn, the preborn people in the world, now, before I make any further comments about this, let me just add this most important qualifier. Those of you who have been part of an abortion, and I know I'm talking to numbers of people, those of you who have been part of an abortion, I want to remind you that there is mercy and forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. We serve a merciful God. There is one prayer that God always hears and answers immediately. He always hears it and answers it immediately. He never turns a deaf ear to this prayer. Are you ready? Here's the prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let me tell you what that prayer does. It creates low pressure, and the wind of God comes right to it immediately just like in the atmosphere on the earth where there's low pressure, you got wind. And when you pray that prayer, it creates spiritual low pressure and the, and the presence of God, the favor of God, the forgiveness and mercy of God flows immediately to that. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you have been part of an abortion, if you ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you. If you've already asked for forgiveness, then you have the assurance that God has heard your prayer and he's answered your prayer. Amen. So you'd be encouraged by that. Now we find in our culture today the most amazing thing. You know, when you look at, at motherhood in general, uh, mothers are amazing. Tireless care, infinite love, n- incredible patience, nurturing. It, it's, just, it's just remarkable the role that mothers have. So when we live in a society where many mothers now are no longer protecting the lives of their preborn children, we know that we're in deep trouble. And we are in deep trouble. We are in deep stuff in this culture right now. There are men and women protesting in front of the homes of Supreme Court justices right now as we're in this room. There are churches all over America who have protesters out in front of their buildings right now at the steps of the church while people are trying to worship like we are. Protesting the the possibility of losing the the, the legal op- option of abortion it's amazing so we must say something about the voiceless unborn someone's got to speak up someone needs to say so so we must speak up and take a clear stand against the horrible evil which is abortion this is the mandate of god this is this is the requirement of, of God's will and his word, to speak for those who, can, who have no voice, to, to advocate for those who have no power. This is the classic example of that very thing. And so we are called to speak up and stand up around this subject. Now here's another, another example, and that's the whole issue of the ref- refugee or the immigrant. The topic of people displaced around the world is a relevant topic. There are literally tens of millions of human beings displaced from their homes around the world for all various reasons. And so what are we to think? What are we to say about this? I wonder if there's anyone else in the room, as bold as I am, who would say, if it's in the Bible, then it's good enough for me. If it's, in, if it's a mandate of the scripture, then it's, uh, then it's good enough for me to embrace and to engage. That's my worldview. That's how I go through the world. So I have placed on your outline today nine verses in your notes that explicitly say followers of Jesus should take care of refugees. Let me give you an example of one of those. It's in Leviticus 19. I'll put it on the screen, verse 33 and 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. So all of this mandates is that Christians should stand up for, speak up for, and support people who are immigrants and refugees. That's the mandate. But let me just add that few issues like this one are one-dimensional. Life is complicated. There are different levels. And... The Bible also grants responsibility and authority to officials in governmental positions who can pass laws, for example, that protect the sovereign borders of a nation. In fact, sovereign borders is a biblical concept. Nation building is a biblical concept. When, when Acts 17 refers to people being in the right place at the right time doing the right things the the verbiage there is actually puts people in place and establishes borders around them and so this is a biblical concept so it's right it's right for governmental officials to develop policies and laws for legal immigration in order to protect the sovereign borders of a country if we det- if we undermine for example the sovereign laws of a country to protect their borders then where does this lawlessness stop? If there's lawlessness at the border, then where does it end? As a smart, well-informed Christian, critically thinking person, able to analyze complex situations, you do not have to support one truth at the expense of another truth. So both are right and true. Both what? In this case, It's right and true that a nation has a God-given biblical right to establish a border. And there's also a mandate in the same scripture that says, if you have an immigrant and a refugee in your midst, then treat them like your own family. Those things are both true. And sophisticated, carefully-minded Christian people can understand both of those things are true and can be practiced. So as Christians, we also need to comply with the laws regarding immigration, support the lawmakers who make appropriate way to protect the citizens of the country. Interestingly, next week, we'll be reading about Nehemiah, who was called of God to go back to Jerusalem to do what? Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I found it Extreme irony a few years, a couple of years ago when Donald Trump was in the White House and he was trying to build a border wall on our southern border in the United States, and the Roman Catholic Pope currently Pope Francis is sitting in the Vatican, to, uh, impugning Donald Trump for building a wall to protect the border of the United States while he's sitting inside a walled city. <laughs> Can anyone notice the irony? critically thinking people can sort this out. On one hand, protect your borders. Otherwise, you don't have, you don't have, you have a lawless, a lawless culture. And take care of people. Any questions? These two things can coexist, and they should. I want to say one more thing, and I'll be done. I want to brag on our younger son, Isaac, and his wife, Derica. Isaac, from the time he was just a squirt, showed this capacity for being compassionate Toward people, for example, if a classmate or someone was being bullied, he would. We would just watch him do this instinctively, and he would just advocate for anyone being victimized by bullying, that sort of thing. I mean, without without prompting him at all. I mean, I, I, I saw him do this several times. He would just see someone being picked on, and he would just go over there and carefully and graciously insert himself in there and just say, "Don't do that." <laughs> and as he got older and bigger, you know, it got easier for him to to manage all that. So he's always been a really compassionate uh, f- fellow. He's, li- he's like his mother. And so he and his wife, Derek, are not only raising their own two children, but they're currently now for the last four or five months have been also caring for two foster children, both of whom are younger than their own children. One of them is actually just a baby, a toddler. And it's been inspiring to watch... Our own son and daughter in law care for people. This this is under the category of orphans and widows that God calls us to care for. This is what Christians do. And it's a good thing. So in conclusion, what position of influence has God given you right now? Has God given you right now? And what does he want you to say? in that place of influence. I'll leave you with the words that Mordecai said to Esther back in the day. Esther 4.14, when he said, and who knows but that you have come to your position for such a time as this. You have come to your position for such a time as this. So who has God given you to influence and what are you to say? You think about that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for this powerful story, amazing story. And we wonder sometimes as we hear stories like this, if you're even involved, and we have circumstances in our own lives when, gosh, how did, how did this set of circumstances happen? And yet, we know that you're behind the scenes, present, guiding that while some things seem like they're coincidental, none of that is really true. You are here. You're with us. You will never leave us. You can be trusted. Here's what I want you to do, friend, if you're willing today, in this few, last few moments. Could I get you to name your fears? It's a fearful time in the world right now. Can I get you to name your fear? I mean, are are you bold enough to bring it front and center in your mind? Maybe it's an illness or that you're aging. You're afraid you won't have enough money. Loss of your job. Loss of your home. Maybe there's a breakdown in your family. You're afraid of being alone. Perhaps you have wayward children. You're suffering from depression. Afraid to die. Whatever it is, would you bring it up? Bring it up in front of you? I've got mine in front of me. Now here's what I want to challenge you to do take a courageous stand, just like Esther and Mordecai, knowing that life may look sometimes just like, man, this is so unpredictable, this is so uncertain, this is so unsteady, so fearful. Even though that that seems to be true, let me remind you, God is behind the scenes, And he's working all things out for your good. He's taking even the most tragic and difficult circumstances. And he is at work to will and to do according to his good pleasure for all of our good. So just like the Jewish people to this day celebrate the feast of Purim... God rescued them from an impossible situation. We can be full of the same assurance today that in Jesus Christ, we need not be afraid of anything. Not of anything. Not of one thing. Because he's with us. So Lord Jesus, comfort our hearts today. Increase our faith and help us to place our confident trust and hope in you. Because you're a good God. And you are up to good in and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. Stand with us, please.